Uh, well, I want you guys to think of the greatest gift that you have ever received. Greatest gift you've ever received. And, and if you're anything like me, you can probably think of a few, right? I, I'm very blessed. I'm thankful to have a wonderful family, wonderful friends. I, I, I could think, I almost have to limit it down. Like, what was the greatest gift I received as a kid? What was the greatest gift I received when I first got married? What's the greatest gift I received in my life? One of those, that, the one that immediately comes to mind for me um, is when I turned 30 years old, um, my wife uh, made a journal for me uh, that had 30 uh, love letters to me. And she wrote like a love letter for something specific that she loved or appreciated about me. And the reason why I appreciated that, not, not only the words in the journal, journal were very meaningful, but I knew how much time that would have taken my wife. I knew how much energy that would take her to write. And, and some people, like for some of you, words of affirmation just come like very naturally, right? Like my dad's that way. He'll call me up. And no joke, he'll call me up and just leave me a voicemail to say, Stephen, I just want to let you know I'm proud of you. And then he'll just hang up. And that's it. I'm like, and my, my, Katie at first thought that it was like just so unauthentic. Because like, who does that? But some people, that's just who you are. For Katie, that's a discipline and a muscle that she has worked and worked and worked to become so good at. And so when I got that journal, it wasn't just the fact that those words were so meaningful to read. It's how much time it took and how much energy it took. That that was a sacrifice that she could have just bought me something off Amazon but she took several hours because she knew how meaningful that would be. When we think of the greatest gifts we've received, it's not really about the gift, right? It's about the sacrifice that was made in order to give us that gift. And the more love you have for someone, the easier it is to give that kind of sacrifice, right? The easier it is to be generous. I think most people are naturally generous towards the people you love the most, that's, that's, that's very common. That, that, that's something that people don't necessarily have to tell you to do. That's just innate in our human nature. But the uncommon thing, the thing that Jesus calls all of us to be, all of his followers to be, is to be generous towards everybody. Even the people you don't know well, even the people that don't return that love back, that he kind of sets the standard higher for generosity, that it's not just about showing love to the people that we love the most. It's not just about being generous and giving and sacrificial towards the people that we care about the most, but it's also about being generous and sacrificial even towards people we'll never meet. We're going to be in a series over the next few weeks called Uncommon that we kicked off last week, and we're talking about the uncommon calls that Jesus has for his followers, that he sets the standard higher for those who choose to follow him, a life that stands out from the rest of the crowd, that's just, that's just different than the rest of the world, that if we're truly living out our faith and the faith that Jesus calls us to live, it should be uncommon because the things that he calls us to do are unusual. The things that he calls us to do are very different than what the rest of the world naturally does because, because he calls us to show love and empathy towards people that completely disagree with us. An uncommon life that puts other people's needs above our own. And one of the opportunities that we have to live an uncommon life is in the way that we view and use our money. And this isn't a fun topic for some of us to talk about. And maybe that's because we know that this is a topic we need to talk about, right? 
Like the, the, the grip I have on my money and who I'm willing to loosen that grip for and what I'm willing to loosen that grip for, it says a lot about the condition of my heart, right? Like what does your grip on money say about the condition of your heart? What does it say about the things that you value and treasure the most? Because it, it, it tells a story. It's not necessarily the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. And what I want us to do is I want to look at a guy uh, in the Bible, King David, and, and what brought him to a place of generosity in his life. Because that's one of the attributes that he was known for was generosity. Now, most of us know who David is because we know David and Tommy, right? No, I'm kidding. David and Goliath, right? Like whether you're religious or not, you know that. If you watch sports, they say the David and Goliath story, like that, that's one of those Jewish stories that has transcended religion. Like everybody knows David and Goliath. And that, that's years before we're jumping into David's story. That's kind of the beginning of his exciting journey in leadership with God, and he becomes king of Israel. And there's this moment that I think is, is pivotal. There's these pivotal moments in your life that kind of shape who you are. And this is one of those for David. And it comes right after he makes a big mistake out of pride and out of struggle. And how he responds to that really kind of determines where his leadership is going to go from there. And basically what's happened, I'll give you guys the context, and then we're going to jump into 2 Samuel 24. 2 Samuel 24. But here's the context. is As David becomes king of Israel, and he's kind of the beloved king. He's the king that, that the Israelites love, that they've been asking for, and he's the guy. Uh, and, and, you know, his approval rating is, is through the roof. There's some people that don't like him, but for the most part, he, he's loved. And, and what he does is he decides to take a census and to see just how many Israelites there are now. Now, okay, that seems kind of, you know, no big deal on surface level, but you have to think of the motivation behind this. Why is he wanting to count how many people are under his leadership? He wants to know how popular he is. He wants to know how influential he is. It's the same as those of you that count how many Instagram followers you have. Or when you post something on Facebook or Instagram and you see how many likes and how many comments it has. And, and some of you don't want to admit it, but sometimes you'll post something online and it won't get the number of likes or comments or the kind of reception you want. And then what do you do? You won't admit it. You delete it, right? We have this, in, we have this desire in us that we want to live these important, meaningful lives. We want to make an impact. We want people to think that we're really important and popular. That's kind of what, what motivates David to take a census. Is he says, I want you to count, and it takes a lot of work, all of his officials, I want you to count how many people we got now. Why is David doing this? Because he's thinking about his kingdom. He's not thinking about God's. He's thinking about his. And, and it frustrates God, and the reason it bothers God is because God, David is trying to take credit for what God built. So God put David in this position of influence, and now David is trying to take credit for it and say, look what I got here. So right after he does this, David feels convicted. That's when we're jumping into the story. 2 Samuel 24 says this. After he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. David felt convicted and he repented because he knew that he was doing it out of pride. So the next morning... 
the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer, which a seer is similar to like a chaplain or a spiritual advisor. Or if you're not spiritual, it'd be like a life coach or a mentor who's there to make sure that you're staying on track. David had this, and his name was Gad. So God told Gad, (laughs) this is the message, go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments and I will inflict it on you. This sounds fun, right? So there's consequence for our sin. The disobedience that we have towards God has consequences. Just as if a kid is disobedient to their parents, there's consequences, right? Because we want, to, we want them to feel the sting of their mistakes. We want them to understand that when they do something wrong, there is a consequence, not just for the sake of punishment, so, but so that they will not do it again, right? It's why you get a speeding ticket. Who here's gotten a speeding ticket before? Most of us have gotten some type of ticket before. I, no joke, I'm the winner here. I have gotten two speeding tickets on the same night, on the same road, by the same cop. No joke. I thought I was immune because I worked for Domino's Pizza Incorporated as a delivery driver, and I just assumed that we kind of had an agreement with the cops. Hey, I'm working. What I'm doing is important. You guys should just let me go the speed I need to go so we can be 30 minutes or less. That's our goal. That's our vision, trying to achieve the vision, right? So I get, we're on this, I'm on this small country road that the speed limit, quite frankly, it's too slow. And I was trying to prove a point that night. And so I was going about 15 miles over. I get pulled over. He sees that I work for Domino's. And quite, he actually was like, I'm sorry, but... You know the law. And I'm like, okay, officer. And I get the ticket. And I'm furious because I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to make $3 in tips on this delivery. That ticket is 115 And I'm like a 20-year-old college student, so that's a lot of money for me. Uh, and I don't learn my lesson. I, t- I actually convince myself the opposite. I convince myself, now that I've gotten a ticket and I've met that cop's quota, he's going to move on. Now I can do whatever I want. No more than two hours later, I get stopped by the same cop at the same place, and I'm going even faster. And now that I have a ticket on my record, the second ticket is double that. So I now have like almost $500 worth of tickets, and I think I made $40 in tip that night. So not a good night for me, right? Why do we get paid? Why do we, why is there a fee for us speeding? To fund the police? No, right? I mean, maybe that's part of it, but... It's so we don't do it again. If all you do is get pulled over and the cop's like, you've been a bad boy, you're like, okay, cop. But the sting of having that piece of paper sitting on my passenger seat, the rest of the night, actually two of them, sitting on the passenger seat the rest of the night, I'm going to make sure I don't speed again. Like, I'm slowing things down. All of a sudden, you're way more cautious until you forget about it, then you speed and get another ticket, then you slow down, right? That it's the sting that we need. That's why there are consequences for the things that we do wrong, because we know that we're driving unsafe. So God does the same thing. Now, let me say this, a quick disclaimer. For those of you who have chosen to turn from your sin, your disobedience to God, and your selfishness towards others, in order to follow Jesus, you've asked God to forgive you, that punishment that you deserve for your sin has been taken, the wrath is off of you, and it's been displaced and put on the cross in the sacrifice that Jesus had for you. So I'm thankful that because of God's grace, the punishment I deserve is actually given to Jesus. That doesn't mean the consequences aren't there. I still have consequence for my sin. 
But for those who have chosen to repent, the punishment has been removed off of you and is now given to Jesus. But at this point in history, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet. Like they were living under the old covenant. So here were David's choices because of his sin. If Jesus never came, this is what our relationship with God would look like. Okay, so uh, verse 13, it says this. So Gad came to David and he asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout your land? three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of severe plague throughout your land. Think this over and decide what answer I shall give to the Lord who sent me. It's like the worst game of would you rather of all time, right? That's what David has to decide here. And David, in just raw emotion, he's like, I am in a desperate situation. David replied to Gad, but, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So what David is saying there is, I'm dependent on your mercy first, Lord. Verse 15, so the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. Get this, a total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation from Dan, which is one of the tribes of Israel, in the north to Beersheba in the south. 70,000 people died because of David's sin. You know what this shows me? God takes sin more seriously than we do, right? It is really easy for all of us to become numb to the sin in our lives. Whether you're religious or not, you probably know the areas of your life that you're disobedient. You probably know the things that you need to get healthier. You probably know the mistakes that you kind of make over and over again. But sometimes, often, what happens is we become numb to those because we don't want to put in the work that it takes to overcome those. We don't want to have to, have to not give in to our emotional impulses. It's easier, it feels better to just give in to sin, right? We become numb to it, but it separates us from God. It hurts his heart. It's, it's, it's like a kid who directly looks their parent in the eye and disobeys them. It's like a direct sting and spiritual spit in the face to God. So it hurts his heart, even if it doesn't hurt ours, because we don't recognize how sin seriously is. And, and while we may not be punished in the same way that David was, God will still discipline us. Why? So that we'll grow. Because God loves you too much to let you stay the way that you are. Just like a parent. You don't just let your four-year-old get away with whatever they want. Because you know that they need to grow out of that. They need to mature. You love your kid too much to let them stay the way that they are. And God will discipline you in the area of your life where you least trust in him. And for David, it was what? It was his pride. It, it was, he'd become so overconfident and arrogant that he could lead and do whatever he wanted. He'd have success wherever he goes. In fact, earlier in the Bible, when it's talking about David's military conquest, it actually said he had success wherever he went. So God realized that David now thought that he didn't necessarily need God anymore. He could do it all on his own. So what did God do? His discipline was right there, right where David needed to learn a lesson, Right? God disciplined David in the area of his disobedience, in the area of your life where you trust God least or where you're struggling to trust God the most. That's the area where God will lean in the most. You do this with an employee, right? If you had an employee who was struggling in like a particular area, 
like you're going to focus more time there. You're going to you're maybe offer more training there. You're going to counsel them. You're going to give them more guidance. You might set more parameters there because that's the area they're struggling the most. That's exactly what God does. That's what God does in the areas of our disobedience. The area of your life you're holding back the most from God, where you need the most improvement, that's the area he's going to focus. And, and that's frustrating for us. Because what we want is God to just give us that yes and to move on. But God says, actually, we've got some work to do right here. This is the area. This is the barrier right here. That's where the punishment, that's where the discipline, that's where it's going to come, right there. Verse 16, but as the angel of the Lord was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, stop, that's enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. So David admits fault. He says, I'm not pushing the blame anymore. This is on me. These people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. Now, this is is like the beautiful part of the story where God's grace intervenes. And you know why? It's because David repented. He repented quickly. He didn't blame others. He didn't complain. He owned his mistakes. And let me just say this. Some of us are really good at blaming others for the problems in our lives. And as long as we do that and we don't own up to what we could have done differently or what we did wrong, as long as we blame others, we're never going to move on from it. We're going to be stuck right there. Until you can own your mistakes and take responsibility for your own sin, your own mistakes, nothing's going to change. We're so good at this, right? That's why we hire lawyers to convince other people it's not our fault. That's why if you go to McDonald's and you get a coffee, what does it say on the side? It says, it's hot, don't drink it yet. Why? Because somebody didn't wait for the coffee to cool down. They burned their mouth, and what did they do? It wasn't their fault. It's McDonald's fault. So they hire a lawyer, there's a whole lawsuit, and they won where it's McDonald's fault that that lady's coffee was too hot, and now everybody has to be warned of it, right? We are so good at blaming others. Instead of saying, you know what? I probably could have done better there. Probably was more on me. That's what David finally says. Listen, this isn't anybody else's fault. This is on me. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. We don't like to confess. But when we do, it makes all the difference, right? When someone apologizes to you finally, doesn't that make all the difference? That literally happened this morning, as I was pulling out of Cumberland Farms, and I'm backing out, and you know, there's kind of frost on the window and stuff, so I think the guy behind me just didn't see me. So I'm halfway out of the spot. He starts backing out, and I realize he ain't slowing down because he's not looking, and he's going to hit me. So I have to actually put my car back in drive and park and wait for him, and I'm kind of annoyed. And, and he, he kind of pulls all the way out, takes his time, and then he finally realizes that he had actually cut me off and I had to pull in. And so I'm like annoyed and, and mad for like three seconds. And then he rolled down his window and he looked at me and, and he realized it and he actually waved and he apologized. Doesn't that make all the difference? And so all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? The world's a great place. <laughs> he got out of the car and he came over to me. He's like, hey man, I'm really sorry. It's been a stressful morning. And I was like, it's okay. You know, Sundays are kind of scattered for me because I actually preach at a church on Sundays. And he goes, oh, really? I've been thinking about going back to church. And we had this meaningful conversation where he said, what church is that? I said, Grace Church. I said, actually, our service starts in like an hour. He said, can I come? So he's actually here. Would you mind coming? 
I'm totally kidding. The second half of that story is a complete lie. <laughs> I just thought it'd be a revival, baby. No. That part didn't happen. Preachers always say that. And I'm like, that didn't happen. You're a liar. That part didn't happen. But he actually did roll down his window and apologize before he drove off. Now, doesn't that make all the difference when someone stops and apologizes? Like, I was ready to be grumpy for the next 10 minutes. And I'm like, you know what? He noticed it. When we repent, when we confess, when we don't push the blame, but we say, God, you know what? That's on me. It makes all the difference. That's what God's waiting for. He wants to have the kind of relationship with us. By the way, he knows you're at blame. So you can trick yourself all you want. He's just waiting for us to be honest. Goes on, verse 18. That day Gad came to David and he said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went to do what the Lord had commanded him. So David repented, then he was obedient. And it's not just about like admitting you're wrong. It's actually following through with obedience, a change in behavior. Like true repentance is proven by a change in behavior. If you just apologize and then nothing changes, that's not true repentance. Like rep- repentance has to lead to transformation, has to lead to behavior change. Now here's what happens next. This is when it starts to get really good here. This is the part I want us to zone in on. Verse 20. It says, When Arana saw the king and his men coming towards him, he came and he bowed before David with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord the king? That was a common... uh, He's not saying lord like God lord. That was just a common address in Jewish culture. Arana asked. David replied, I've come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Arana says, take it, my lord, the king, and use it as you wish. Here are oxen for the burnt offering. You can use the threshing boards and the ox yokes for wood to build a fire. I will give all of this to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. So obedience becomes worship when it's freely given. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing with the right attitude. Like, just being obedient as we complain through it all isn't enough. Have you ever been forced to do something you didn't want to do, and you complained through it? Like, you did it, but you complained through it? That's, I'm, like, for the years, my wife finally picked up on this. I hate shopping on Saturdays. I hate it. Especially, the mall is like, maybe hell on earth. I can't stand the mall. I can't, all the prices are off. Everyone's all, like, ah, I can't do it. So we go on Saturdays, and it's packed and I'm tripping over people. And so we, like, what I've started to do, because I, I cannot stand shopping. I don't like shopping at all. And so Katie will go, amen, finally get an amen in this one, right? So we will go shopping, and I will hang out in the store. And some stores have picked up on this, that guys like me don't like shopping, and they will put a chair in the side for me to sit in, right? They're like, we know you hate this, so just sit there. Because you're slowing down. Let your wife, we don't want her to lose momentum. She's got to keep going. This is important. So I'll sit in the side and I'll just watch college football on my phone while she shops. And I complain through the entire day and it's miserable for her. And she finally realized that as, as nice as I was being by going, I was actually making it ex- like the experience horrible for her. She'd rather just go on her own than have me complain. Are we going to another store? Seriously? Right? Because my attitude wasn't in the right place. And I think sometimes we can do that. Like we can be obedient and repent and then complain our way through what we need to do, what God asks us to do. If our hearts aren't in the right place, we've missed the whole point of worship. Worship is that, thank you, God, you know the better way. 
And as hard as this is for me, my attitude is in it, God, because I know that this is what I need. Even though it's harder, even though it takes more energy, I'm there, God, because I know that that's what I need. It's worshiping him with no restraint and no complaint. Now watch this part, because this is the most important part of the message right here. Verse 24, the King David replied to Arana, now I insist on buying it. Arana offered to give it to him. He says, no, no, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that have cost me nothing. Remember how the most meaningful gifts that we give require sacrifice and investment? So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. See, the the common response to Arana would have been, thank you so much for this free gift. Thanks for the deal. Like, they were getting a Black Friday deal on the altar. And David said, no, no. David's uncommon response was, I will not give to God what costs me nothing. David is showing us the uncommon generosity of someone who fully trusts in God with their lives. Why? Because he knows the importance of being sacrificial and fully invested back to God. And he knew that to express his love to God wasn't to just take the free. It was to truly invest back to God and show that he loved him. I will not give to God what costs me nothing. David knew that it belongs to God. This goes back to sacrifice. If you really love someone, you're willing to sacrifice for them, not just find the cheapest deal, right? That's why it baffles me the number of engagement rings I see on Groupon. Now, you may have got, don't, I'm not judging you if you did, but ladies, If after that ring is placed on your finger, your husband says, you'll never guess the deal I got on that sucker. Is that going to make you feel more loved? No, it's not because money equals love, but the sacrifice that you're willing to show and express your love towards is an expression of love. Dollars don't equal love, but but if you're looking for the shortcut to show your love, how meaningful is that? And that's what David is saying. He's like, I'm not looking for a shortcut. I'm showing my love to God because he is first for me. So I'm not looking for a handout. I'm showing that God is first. And we are not looking for for the cheapest deal here. We are putting him first. We are expressing our generosity to him, even though it stings a little bit more, even though it's a little bit more sacrificial, because I love him and I trust him and I put him first. And I know his way is better than mine. And even when it stings, I trust him. He's in the pilot seat. That's what David is showing here. He expressed his devotion to God by how much he was willing to sacrifice for him. How generous his heart was. Did he give the bare minimum? No, because he knew that's not what true love looks like, giving the bare minimum. See, your first fruits, what you choose to spend your money on first, your first fruits are a trail to your treasure. They point to the things that you value most in your life. And what you spend your money on first and foremost are the most important things in your life according to you, right? Those are the things you're never going to miss a bill on. Those are the things that you're never going to cut back on. What you make room for in your bank account are the things that matter most to you. So in the spring, I led a financial peace class. We try to do those usually about once a year. Um, If you guys aren't familiar with financial peace, it was started by a guy named Dave Ramsey um, years and years ago, and it's helped just thousands and thousands, probably millions of people at this point, get out of debt and and financially align their budgets back to uh, a godly perspective of 
finances. You don't have to be a Christian to take the course, but he uses all Christian principles. He uses Bible verses. He says budget in the tithe right off the bat. And so in those conversations, it's always fascinating because the first two weeks we talk about budgeting. And I'd say over half the people that do the course have never actually tried to live on a monthly budget before, which is part of the reason they're in debt, right? And one of the things we tell them to do is we give them a budget and we say, we want you to write it down. And then I want you to come back next week and I want you to highlight the areas that you struggle to live within a budget on. Things that you could cut back, but it's just hard for you because you like to, right? And a lot of times, those areas, you can probably think of those, a lot of times it's, it's shopping, it's like, oh, well, you know what, we don't really stick to a budget there because we, really, we like to do that. It's going on dates, it's going out to eat. Like, almost everybody in the group is like, I eat out way too much. And we were doing this in the middle of COVID, and they're like, all the restaurants are closed, all of a sudden I have money again, right? And you can find those areas that, even if you're, you're like, you know what, money's tight, we're going to cut this out, but I'm not cutting that out, right? Everybody has those things because we value them. So that's why our first fruits, they point to what we treasure most because we always make room for those things in our budget or lack of budget for some of us, right? Like for me, one of those is books. Now I know I'm a nerd, I get it, and I'm gonna create a complete disconnect with some of you. This is a stack, these are the books I've bought in the past month. Now to be fair, I've read all of them. So I don't just buy books and then I throw them out. I speed read. I speed read in the morning while I'm working out. That's how I get it. A lot of you are like, you have too much time on your hands, loser. I get it. It's a productivity thing. I speed read every single morning for an hour and a half. I love to read. One thing that I value, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that to brag. You guys think I'm a loser now. That's fine. I don't care. I love to learn. I love to learn new things and I love to read books on different topics. So for me, that's an area of our budget we spend way too much money on but I'm like, well, we're not gonna cut back. So I'll say, Katie, we don't need more clothes. We got a whole closet of them. She's like, well, you don't need more books. I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course we do. That book could change my life. $12 for life change? How could I not, right? Like you always justify the things that matter most to you. So what you spend your money on, it's a trail to the things that you treasure. And that's why our generosity is a reflection of how much we treasure our relationship with God. Now, many people, in fact, (laughs) if I'm just being candid, the majority of the people in this room don't give anything to God, let alone their first fruits. And I'm not saying that to convict you. I'm saying that to highlight this area of your life. Don't overstep this. This might be the reason why you don't feel financially like you're where you need to be. Maybe it's because you haven't trusted God with it yet. And maybe he's allowing it because you have not invited him into that area of your life because you haven't been obedient to him there. So he's not going to bless an area of your life that you're being disobedient. Now, God calls everybody, every single person who wants to follow him to give their first fruits to him. In the Bible, they call that the tithe, which is the, 10, the first 10%. And what he's doing is he's saying, if you're truly all in, then your first fruits, they're a, they're a trail to your heart. Those are the things, it shows what you matter the most. The things we love most are the things that we loosen our financial grip for. That's why Jesus says this, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroy them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. There are some people in this room that are incredibly generous back to God. And you know what? They treasure more than anything in their life, their relationship with God. 
And the way they view their finances reflects that. Because your treasure is a trail to your heart. And that's why we love talking about this so much. Because God clearly tells us that this is one of the indicators of how much faith we have in him. It's not because we need your money. It's not. Jesus talked about this more than any other subject. It's not because he needed his money. Jesus didn't even have a house. He didn't even have stuff. He didn't need their money. He wanted them to understand that this is often the last area of our lives we unlock and give over to God. So this conversation is not about you and us. This is about you and God. We don't need your money. I don't preach on commission. It's not like whatever you give today, I'm like, sweet, we're going out to eat tonight. Doesn't work that way. My salary is is, is, is set by our advisors, and I'm not in the room for that. And it's not like, here's how much we took in, here's how much people gave, Stephen, you get a raise. There's a lot of jobs that are that way, and there's nothing wrong with those. We intentionally don't set it that way because we don't want your giving to influence our leadership. So we have put in a safeguard that never allows that to happen. This conversation is not about you and Grace Church. This is about you and God. And the reason we like talking about this at this time of year is because this tends to be a season of generosity, right? Like this tends to be a season in culture where we, where we are more open to giving back and to helping others and to looking around. In fact, in the past month, more of you have asked me how we can help in the community than in any other month in this year. And that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying it's on your mind. As we get to the end of the year, we tend to think of that. Thanksgiving's coming. We think, how can we feed families in need? Christmas is coming. How can we give gifts to people in need? I love that. That's part of the reason why we intentionally talk about this now is as we're talking about generosity, I want you to understand how much this ties in with your faith. So here's your next step. You need to figure out where you're at in this generosity journey. For some of you, your next step is just giving something to God. Just give something to him. Show him that you trust him. For some of you, you've been giving something, and now you need to give regularly because you're not just giving your leftovers and you're saying, I got this left, I'm just going to throw it in the offering basket, but you're actually giving regularly to God. You're budgeting your generosity to God. For some of you, you've already taken that step, and your next step is you need to think tithe. Like, you've been giving regularly, but you know, you know, because we've talked about this before, that you're not really giving all of your first fruits to God, that first 10%. So your next step needs to go from from regularly to giving that. For some of you, the next step after that, you're already tithing. How can you be generous? How can you give above and beyond? Because generosity is not giving the bare minimum, which the tithe is the bare minimum. Some of us just need to get to that threshold. Generosity is giving above and beyond that. That's why I love the Hope Project. It's a really clean, easy way that you can give above and beyond that. That's my wife. We get excited about it. We don't change how much we give regularly to the church. We just give above and beyond that with the Hope Project. And we start to think through that. As we think year in, we start to think through how much are we setting aside for the Hope Project. What I love is is the countless stories of, of churches that may not exist if not for your generosity with the Hope Project. Resurrect Church, which is like seven minutes of us in Brockton, a brand new church. Now, I'm not saying they wouldn't have existed if not for you guys. I'm not saying that. But I don't know if they would have launched in September without the Hope Project. They're the only church I know that launched during COVID. And because of your generosity, they felt the confidence to do that. I love that. I love that we have new churches starting out of Grace Church 
because of your generosity. We have one in Norton. We're starting a brand new one in the North Shore, the first Grace Church that'll be north of Boston in Peabody, and it's going to be because of the Hope Project that we're able to help that get started and launch in a really healthy, strong way, just like our location did. Let me just close by saying this. I I know it's been a hard year. For most of us, it's the hardest year we've ever had in our lives. I know that. How amazing would it be if after all that's happened in this year, you end your year by pledging your faith in God that even though Satan threw everything at you to try to disrupt your faith, you ended the year by saying, God, I put you first even in finances, even in what for many of you has been financially the most unstable, uncertain year in your life, that you said, God, I still trust you with that. I can't be shaken, God, because you are first. How amazing would that be? Just imagine what that would do, not only in your community, but in your home and in your heart. Your first fruits are a trail to your treasure, and your treasure is a trail to your heart. Let's pray together. God, um, Lord, first, I just need to thank you that you always, always, always take care of me. And I often focus so much on what I don't have yet, on what prayer you haven't answered yet, God, that I overlook that you've always taken care of me. So, God, I just pray that we as a group of people can remember that you always take care of us. God, that you walk ahead of us in situations, that you walk beside us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you help us to get through those. And you walk behind us, and just like with David, sometimes you, you have to clean up our messes and we don't even see it, God. Lord, help us to be more generous people because it's a reflection of how much we're putting you first, God. Lord, I pray that even in a year, as crazy as it's been, that we can show that we trust you now more than ever because we need you now more than ever. God, if there's anybody in this room that's never fully said yes to you and put you first and asked for you to forgive them, I pray that they do that right now. Say, God, will you, just like David, will you help forgive me for my sins? I repent. I'm taking ownership. I'm not blaming others. This is on me. God, will you forgive me for my sin? Will you forgive me for my sin? Will you help me to put you first? God, will you take the punishment that I deserve and put it on Jesus on the cross? God, I just want to be made right with you. I want to start a new relationship with you. If there's anybody in this room that's taken that step, let them pray that right now as the beginning of their journey with you. And if they say that prayer and they ask for you to forgive them, I believe you do. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they start a new life with you, a new life with you, God. Lord, we thank you that you're good to us. Thank you that you've walked us through this. We pray this in your name. Amen.